Here on Just Energy, we explore what energy injustice is, its racial and social dimensions, and how to make future energy policy making more inclusive by design. Because it's never just about energy, it's about people. Today on Just Energy, we will focus on energy poverty and energy insecurity. To provide some context, in research that I have conducted with collaborators, we found that in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, roughly May 2020 to May 2021, over 23 million low-income Americans were unable to pay their energy bills in at least one month, and about 8 million were completely disconnected from the electric grid. Black households are three times more likely to be disconnected, and Hispanic households are four times more likely to be disconnected than white households. When a family cannot access energy, they cannot run refrigerators, heaters, or AC units. They cannot charge their phones or keep perishable food, and they cannot use electronic learning devices or health equipment. This is a real problem, and I am honored and humbled to be joined today by a thought leader in this field, Dr. Destiny Nock, to talk about what is going on and what we can do about it. Dr. Destiny Nock is an assistant professor of engineering and public policy and civil and environmental engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. In Dr. Nock's research, she uses mathematical modeling tools to address societal problems related to energy policy, equity, and engineering for social good. And her research has focused primarily in the U.S. and Sub-Saharan Africa. Some fun facts that Destiny, that I have learned about Destiny is one, she is a Harry Potter nerd. <laughs> Two, she has a remarkable ability to design interactive games and activities to teach concepts of electricity markets and social equity to her students. And three, she is a phenomenal mentor to students. And I am also pleased today to be joined by a student co-host, Jacob Alder, who is a first-year Master of Public Affairs student in our program and surprisingly also focused on justice and equity in the energy transition. Prior to graduate school, he worked with public utilities through roles in both consumer advocacy and energy engineering in several states. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Awesome. Jacob, tell us where you grew up. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ah, I do love it there. What's your favorite thing? Oh, I love, I love Utah. I love all of the mountains and I just have had so many great experiences in the outdoors. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Awesome. And what is your favorite thing about your O'Neill school experience so far? Great question. Uh, I think for me, one of my favorite things is I have just been so impressed by how approachable faculty are. And I guess within my focus on equity and the energy transition, I'm really excited about harnessing financial tools to improve marginalized communities' access to the benefits of the energy transition. And several professors have been very excited and also generous in helping me study this topic. Oh, been a great experience so far. That's really great. Well, Jacob, let's introduce or let's uh, welcome Destiny to the show. Welcome, Destiny. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So um, on this podcast, we are exploring the meaning of energy justice. Can you tell us what energy justice means to you? Energy justice to me is kind of the intersection of three things. There's uh, distributive justice, and that's when we look at the distribution of the benefits or burdens associated with energy infrastructure and systems. Then we have um, procedural justice. And so that's where we're really thinking about like the laws and the way different ways of fairly um, incorporating different perspectives into energy transition discussions. And then the last piece is kind of um, more of like a historical lens. And I would think of that as his restorative justice. 
And so that's kind of looking more at like, how do you kind of compensate for past and ongoing harms that have been caused by energy systems? And so then energy justice as a whole can kind of be at the intersection and playing in between each of these three different realms. That's great. And what led you into this field? I think for me, it was a combination of my first study abroad experience in Malawi. That's when I think I woke up to the fact that there were a lot of energy challenges that we um, had not solved yet. So, so when I went to Malawi, I was a sophomore in college and I'm sitting in my dorm. I had just paid for this internet card. So I could call my parents, Oh yeah, right? We're on the call and boom, blackout. And I'm like, what in the world like happened? And then I go to the front desk, like, Hey, you know, my internet card, I just loaded it up. I had an hour left that I had paid for. And the guy was like, Oh yeah, that's gone. And I'm like, what do you mean gone? Like I want my money back. He's like, no, no, no. Like when the blackout comes, there's no way to track how much uh, of your internet card was left. And so sorry, you know, and he was like, Oh, well, rolling blackout. The government told us that the blackout was going to come on Tuesday because they were thinking they wouldn't have enough energy supply for everyone, but it's actually Friday. So sometimes they're a little late, you know? And so then that's when I kind of realized that there was this large need to coordinate and manage and plan for the system that was leading to inequities, right? And so if I was, you know, a student in uh, Malawi, trying to get an education, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to maybe even get a U.S. education and it's overseas where I got to pay for the internet card, then the electricity goes out. So now I can't study and I don't have the internet and I just lost all the money. Mm -hmm. It makes it really hard to move ahead and that further widens that inequality gap. And then um, when I was in my PhD, I was working on sustainability and trade-offs and planning and kind of learning about how to plan And then I met this guy, Todd Levin from Argonne National Lab, who said in developing countries, like we may be planning it wrong. We look, use a least cost optimization model, we forecast demand, but really like our objective function is to increase the social benefits of using electricity. So maybe we should plan it in a more equitable way. And so that's when I kind of saw this other dimension, you know, so the first time, just my personal experience with the distributional inequity. And I think that being in Malawi was actually the first time I realized that I was an engineer because my teacher was like, Hey, you're an engineer to the core because you just love solving problems. And I'm like, Hey, if that's what an engineer really does, Mm -hmm. I think we should go tell these students like that, you know, and get some more engineers up in here. I love it. And did you get to talk with your parents (laughs) in the end? (laughs) I did. Yeah. My mom and dad got really freaked out. So I'm the oldest, right? First time any, anybody from my family had gone out of the country. Yeah. Um, But I, at least I know they care. Awesome. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your work on energy poverty. Uh, Can you begin just by telling us a little bit about what energy poverty is and why it's such a big challenge to address? So in a broad sense, energy poverty is a deficit of access to modern energy services. You know, not being able to access a certain amount of energy um, that would lead to you having a better life or that you need to consume to, you know, kind of run your jobs, run your businesses, keep a comfortable environment in your home, where kind of energy poverty is the biggest circle. Within that circle, there's energy insecurity, So that may mean that you have enough power plants in your region to supply you electricity most of the time, but now you're getting these reliability concerns where it may, you know, you may get disconnected, 
you might get a shutoff. You might experience power outages or brownouts where, you know, the voltage is kind of not at the right level. Um, and that's insecurity, kind of like risk of not having supply for a certain period of time. And then if we go inside of insecurity, right? So now we're poverty's on the outside. Now we're in insecurity. Now at the very center of this circle would be energy um, affordability or energy burden. And that means that you have it. It's reliable because it's there. You just can't afford to use it. Energy burden is the percent of income that you spend on meeting your energy bills. So all of these things can be a part of energy poverty. And just depending on where you are in this kind of energy transition, uh, you might be experiencing poverty in a different way. So how well are we currently tracking these, these, these three different metrics that you've laid out very well? Uh, because it seems like they take in different inputs and and maybe you can also illustrate who is the we, like who who is collecting these data? One of the gaps that I would see or have seen is this kind of deficit from a, I feel like I can't consume it, so I won't consume it, mm-hmm. a perspective. And so that's not necessarily a disconnection because you may be kind of limiting your energy use to save money, um, but you're not you're kind of on the verge of getting disconnected because you feel like you are kind of struggling, but you're not there yet. And then on the other side, this energy burden measure, if we say, if you spend more than 6% or more than 10% of your income meeting your energy bills, then you're energy poor. While people that are limiting and they're on the verge of disconnection are most likely not going to be the ones that are overspending or not overspending per se, but spending a high percent of their income meeting their energy bills. And so I think that because these people are still experiencing a form of energy poverty because they feel like they can't afford it, but they're adapting and they're trying to reduce their burden. They're trying to make sure their lights don't get cut off. And so then they sometimes get lost in the way that we currently measure energy poverty. So it seems like that is hard to measure. And and from all the different data that you just talked about, seems like there are a lot of different ways that maybe you can go get about this, but is this what your work is focused on? It, it, how are you actually measuring the, those differences in behavior, what people would want to, 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 to heat their house or cool their house at? I do agree that it is difficult to measure um, because you're trying to measure the degree of invisibility, hmm. right? And that to do that, you actually need to go to people who don't feel invisible and see how are they using energy? What are they consuming it at, right? You're trying to control for some other characteristics like household size, occupants, um, just like even the newness of their house because we know that there's different insulation in different houses. And then you're also kind of battling up against these data privacy concerns, right? You have to work with utility companies. They have to have smart meters. How much are you willing to use, right? Like what's the slope of that U-shaped curve? Slope is about, do you have an AC unit? Do you have a central AC unit? Do you have a window unit? Do you just have a fan? Maybe your AC unit's broke and you don't have, you don't have the money to fix it. And so now we have this kind of like other challenge of as we are moving forward and trying to address climate change and people are trying to adapt to climate change, if people cannot buy that adaptation technology, which right now for these high heat temperatures and these heat waves is air conditioners, and if, even if they have them, they don't feel like they can afford to turn them on. Then I think that that makes energy poverty more complex. Yeah. Remind us the name of this technique. 
So this technique is called the energy equity gap. It is a preprint online. Look at my Google scholar or <laughs> on my um, <laughs> publications page of my website. Great. I can definitely see how this metric is very complimentary. So tell us how you think that this is complimentary or what the importance of this energy equity gap adds to the literature, to the discussion. So I definitely think that it cannot replace the other measures of energy poverty because there's no one size fits all solution to addressing energy poverty. There are so many dimensions to energy poverty that we need to account for and one measure won't get us there. So there might be people who are both spending a high percent of their income, meaning their energy bills, but also feeling like they can't afford to, um, can't afford to consume at what they want. And so then there's the disconnection piece, right? And so experiencing those three different forms at the same time is stressful, right? I would not say that one form of energy poverty is more important than the other. I think that we need to one, talk to people that have experienced energy poverty. Cause one of my colleagues was like, how did you think to look at energy limiting behavior? And I'm like, what, you mean you've never been in your coat in your house in the winter? Cause you couldn't afford your bills. And they're like, no. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't know people didn't go through that. Like I thought, Oh, PhD students <laughs> went through that. Um, I'm like, Oh, you've never had your lights cut off in the dead of winter and seen your breath and be really freaked out that your pipes are going to freeze. And then the water doesn't work. And you try to go down and light it, but then you're like, ah, that's probably not a good idea to like light the house, you know, um, <laughs> next to the oil tank. And then you try to use the fireplace, but the fireplace ends up not working. And then you're worried about burning the house down. Right. And so there's all these things. And then it's like, Oh, I guess, no, I guess people haven't experienced this. Right. <laughs> and and that's why we need, again, that procedural justice of bringing in a lot of different community perspectives and a lot of pe like people to solve these problems, because there are problems that some people just haven't experienced. And there are things that like, there are ways to analyze these issues. And I think that that does take a lot of perspective because these issues are very complex. And so then we need to attack them from multiple dimensions. I'm so glad that you've illustrated this experience because I think it really gives us a great picture of like how this is what this energy equity gap actually is and and you lived it i think that this is probably something that feels very intuitive for so many people you were surprised when that other professor hadn't hadn't experienced that but i i want to know how you communicate this what feels like maybe a blind spot in the policy sector how do you communicate it to various audiences and, and make it make sense to policymakers and people who could maybe change some of these practices? With communication, I feel like a lot of it is just trying to learn about the audience and their lived experiences. So I really love to have interactive presentations where I will ask people, okay, raise your hand if you've ever been in your house in the winter and you felt like you could not get warm enough. And actually, a lot of times I see over half of the audience raise their hands, but then people will start to look like, oh, snap, wait, you've never lived that way, right? And it's because this is like that kind of invisible form of poverty. You're in your house by yourself. And so then I tell them, okay, guys, for all the people that didn't raise their hands, since you have no idea what we're talking about, let me just paint you a picture. And then I try to share sometimes my lived experience, or I'll throw some pictures up of like, these are two different households. 
Here's an example of different incomes that they might have. And here's how our traditional way of measuring would kind of miss this one that's super cold in their house, right? So in my example, there's a household with a hundred that makes a hundred grand a year and their percent on income uh, on energy is 20 is 5% of their disposable income. So they're not considered energy poor, but then the household with the blankets and the coats and super cold in their house, they are making only 30,000 a year, but they're limiting. And they also only spend 5% of their disposable income being their energy needs. So they are um, also defined as not energy poor under the energy burden measure, but they are someone who may be at risk of hypothermia if they're actually cutting off their systems in the winter, or they might be at risk of a fire in their house if they're using space heaters. I think it's really important to just making sure people are all on the same page. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that I try to do in my work is get people to understand that there are trade-offs. It's almost like weighing the, the probability of death between two different risky behaviors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Give us a sneak preview of the, I know you're working on so many things <laughs> uh, and for our listeners, just, I would glue yourself uh, to destiny's Google scholar page to see all the pieces that are coming out soon. Um, but tell us about in this space, specifically in the energy poverty space, give us a sneak preview of the next biggest thorniest thing that you want to work on and tackle. <laughs> no small question. No. Um, <laughs> So I think for me, one of the things I'm working on right now is this national energy transition discussion about which pathway would lead to the most equitable outcome mm -hmm. and understanding where we're winning and losing on these national energy transition objectives. My big thing is just trying to get people to understand if you are having this carbon emission reduction goal of we're going to reach net zero by 2035 or 2050 that does not guarantee that you will do that in an equitable manner as you are moving towards that goal. For our work, what we hope people will take away is that if you chose regions to decarbonize based on who had the worst emissions, then you could still reach net zero, but you would be doing it in a more equitable manner. Now, as you're doing that, you do have to consider job replacement, retraining, land use. Do people have access to those technologies that you're replacing it with? Right. Um, but maybe we should start in those communities first. I'm curious, do you have any co-authors on that project? Because um, I have to admit your recent paper is possibly the best um, citation that I have heard, which is go forth and knock. I mean, like I really challenge, I challenge readers to do anything better than that. Do you have a, a co-author in mind that you can? So that is the paper I was referring to, go forth and knock. It's a uh, knockout. Oh my gosh, that's so good. <laughs> I love the the way that you're including and, and, and expanding essentially this research to make sure that lots of people can be involved in this work because it's so important. So tell us what inspired you to be an, a mentor. And, and maybe this is related to some of the things that we've talked about earlier, but I also am curious. I, I know that you write about your mentorship on your blog and it's something that I've enjoyed reading. So tell us a little bit about your blog and your mentorship and how those are tied together. Okay. So my blog is called the Black Electricity Blog. <laughs> black because, well, one, in case the listeners don't know, you're listening to a Black woman talking right now about electricity. So it's really not that deep. But the um, kind of thought behind it was that, you know, if you're looking at a thunderstorm or a lightning storm and you're seeing all these white streaks of electricity raining, raining down, you wouldn't think twice. 
But then if you're looking at that during the daytime and all of a sudden you see a black streak of electricity, you'd be like, what in the world is happening? <laughs> the world is ending, right? And you'd probably do a double take. You'd be super confused. And that's kind of what people seem to look like when I show up at a place where they don't expect me to be, whether that's at the front of a classroom, talking to some government official, right, on a call where I am kind of like leading about energy justice and I'm, or I'm the keynote speaker, like people don't think you don't notice the reactions, but I, I love people. I like watching people's body language and I love shocking people. It's something now that I've just chosen to revel in as opposed to, you know, being surprised about. It sounds like a Marvel superpower that you (laughs) you just described here. The ability to shock people. (laughs) (laughs) So with the mentorship, I had a lot of really great mentors that opened my eyes to things I didn't even know were possible. So with, um, when I was a sophomore, so I come back from Malawi, you know, I, there's this one mentor who took me there, right. Convinced me to go overseas. The first person to leave the United States in my family, my other mentor, Dr. Kabetti, he was kind of more like on the technical project side. He wanted me to look at satellites and he would always introduce me as the next PhD student. And I was like, Dr. Kabetti, I have been in school for a long time. I want to just go make some money. Like my dad wants me to make money. I need to get a house, all this other stuff. Like I want to get married at some point, can't be in school all my life. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hello, sir, sir, and sir. I, this is destiny. And she is the next PhD student. I'm like, please stop telling people that. And he would not let it go. Like he would not give up. And he was like, I don't care if you get a PhD in milking a cow, you better go get a PhD. (laughs) This guy is so funny. I love it. Yeah. He was just like, but he really believed in me. Right. He really believed I could do it. These people are showing me it can be done. And then now I'm doing it right. Like having that existence proof is I think very powerful oh, yeah. um, for students. And there was, you know, time in uh, grad school, or maybe when I first started this job of thinking, man, like we really need somebody to inspire these students to like go into energy equity and bring their whole selves into the research. Because one of my things I get annoyed with is when people tell me, oh, you need to be objective in your research program. And I'm like, Well, it's easy to be objective when the majority view is the dominant view. (laughs) And we all have to understand that we come with different backgrounds and different perspectives and different ways of seeing the world. But then people ask me things like, oh, like, you know, I see that you got this job. Do you ever feel like an imposter? I'm like, yeah, I feel it all the time. They're like, how do you deal with that? And by the second time I get, I'm like, you know, I probably should just write this because I think that this is going to come up a lot and I need a way to send them a document so I don't have to write it in the email every single time. Yeah. So that's when I started the blog. Uh, These are questions that people ask me. And I think that other minorities or women or people who feel marginalized may feel this way too, or wonder this too. But a lot of times, most of the blogs I write are just things that keep coming through my email that I want to give people a detailed response because, you know, clearly that question is coming from a place of either anxiety, overwhelm often, um, or just not knowing what to do. And being a first-generation PhD, a first-generation master's student, a first-generation study abroad person, a first-generation researcher, there are a lot of things that you just don't know. Like, how to deal with a disagreement among your colleagues, how to write your dissertation. What are the steps to getting a PhD? 
How do you deal with the feeling of being alone? How do you talk to your family when they say, hey, you're still in school. Don't you want to get married? Don't you want to have kids? And you're like, yeah, I want to do all of those things. I love kids. I love people. But like, I also love my career and I love wanting to help the world. And you're trying to balance all these things that you super care about, but your family just might not understand. And that's, you know, that's just because they have never interacted with a person like you. And so then you have a lot of questions coming your way. And that sometimes makes you get, sometimes people get defensive. Sometimes they feel overwhelmed. Sometimes it feels anxious. Sometimes they feel like an outsider in their own communities. And I think that it is nice if you can kind of create a space for addressing some of these concerns. And then one, I do like being able to send people a link, right? Like, okay, here's my quick thoughts. But if you want my deep, I've thought about this. And I've given you some links and there's other people whose information I'm going to bring in. Here's a link to this convenient blog post. Well, that actually perfectly leads into the the last question I wanted to ask you, uh, which maybe you could address on your blog later on if it's at all inspirational in that direction. Um, But what is one piece of advice that you'd like to offer the next generation of thinkers and leaders specifically within the energy justice space? The biggest piece of advice that I have is to make sure that you do not get blinded to the people at the end of the day. I think there is this kind of challenge to not look for the purely technical solution that will be the golden standard and solve everybody's problems. And whenever we lose sight of people, that's when we lose sight of energy justice and needing to make sure that as we are incorporating those communities into this energy justice transition discussion, that we're doing it in a meaningful way, but also recognizing that energy justice is super complex. There are going to be trade-offs. There's going to be winners and losers. And we need to try to make sure that the, um, the space and the inequalities are lessening over time is something that I hope people will keep in the forefront of their mind. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you to co-host Jacob. I really appreciate it. And um, Jacob joined me in thanking Destiny for her time here today and her um, inspiration and wisdom. Thank you so much. It's so great to hear from you. And I'm so glad to be associated now. Thanks so much. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Just Energy is produced by Violet Barron and is a collaboration between myself and my public affairs students at Indiana University. In closing, we wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to our region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miyamiaki, Lenape, Borowadmik, and Sawanwa people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. We implore the federal government to respect its treaties with indigenous nations, as well as recognize all tribes seeking federal recognition.